Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by OnPay, the new standard in payroll. You can pay employees and contractors in minutes, automate your payroll taxes and filings, as well as provide health benefits and HR in all 50 states. For more information, visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash onpay. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jay Giroux. He's the founder and CEO of Damon Motorcycles. Jay, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at Damon Motorcycle is actually very innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sounds good. Yeah. So um, I grew up in North Vancouver, BC, which is in Canada. Very cool. Very nice area. Close to the yeah, mountains. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not... Yeah, close, close to several mountains. It's not what people think of Canada. It's a lot more like Seattle, actually. Pretty mild. Often, oftentimes, you could go a whole year without any snow on the ground, sea level. Kind of like, yeah, Seattle and San Francisco slammed together yeah, with cool. uh, Canadian quality of life. Interesting. So you, you went to some university. Do you want to talk about that? And what did you take? And, and walk us through that journey. Well, so not exactly. Um, when I was 17, I moved out. And that was okay. grade 11. Um, I, I also dropped out. Okay. So I dropped out of high school uh, for the most part because um, at that point I'd been kicked out of my house at home like 30 or 40 times and I was getting sick of being kicked out. So I thought it was time I actually moved out. Gotcha. And, um, and uh, the high school, I just, I didn't relate to people in high school who actually didn't want to learn and therefore provided an environment that was not conducive to learning. So I dropped out of high school so that I could attend adult night school. And I had three jobs at the time while I was in high school. So I turned one of those jobs into a full-time job. I kept one of the other ones as a part-time yeah. job. And I started adult night school among 20 to 30-year-olds in th classes that were three hours long where people actually wanted to learn. So I got my high school graduation in adult night school while you know working full-time and a half. Interesting. Okay, so and then university going, never happened. Okay, yeah, university never happened. Um, I I I turned one of those jobs into managing a coffee shop, which turned into selling coffee shop franchises at the age of eighteen. Wow, I helped sell a handful of coffee shop franchises. And at twenty, I was, and I can I can picture this like it like it was yesterday. At twenty, I was standing in front of one coffee shop, looking up at the mountain, which was covered in snow. And I had suddenly recalled that as a teenager, I dreamed of being a professional snowboarder. And somehow I got so busy in the business of being an adult that I forgot about wow. that dream. And I haven't said that to anybody before, but so I, I quit my job. I just quit. And, I, and six months later, I moved to Whistler to become a freestyle professional snowboarder. And, uh, and you know, everything changed. Okay, well, wait. <laughs> Most people, we I would say, we haven't gone to university yet, but <laughs> yeah, well, for, there's that. But and most people, 
like you were like a really big name snowboarder for a number of years, uh, at least across Canada, if not globally. Is that fair to say? My honestly, my name wasn't that known, but my scores were pretty darn good. I was number one in BC in half pipe, big air, slope style, and border cross. Sure. And I was number nine in border cross in Canada, and I was number eighty nine in half pipe in in the year nineteen ninety eight. Got you. Uh, sorry, number 89 and a half pipe in the world. Okay, very cool. Uh, so I had a top 100 ranking in the world in 98. Wow. And I think I was, I was pretty well known around Canada. Um, I did a little bit of media stuff where I'd appear in magazines and videos, but I did a lot of competition. Sure. But I think m- majority of people train for, for that and to be that good for, for a number of years. They don't just kind of fall back into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Um, it, it was a lot of fun. No, um, but I, 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 I eventually, at some point, after like five, six years, had a, a compounding set of injuries okay. that I that became more and more and more difficult to live with, let alone compete with. Got you. Um, and so that that's really where my life started to pivot. Okay, so walk us through that journey up until Damon. Oh my God! So in the five or six years that I was snowboarding, um, you know, you make some money from your sponsors and you make some money from contests, but it doesn't pay the bills. So in between your seasons, your, your snowboard seasons, which there are two or three in a year, your right. winter, your summer and your fall, you can hike and get to the snow. Um, you're, you've got jobs and I, like, I shit you not. I hope I can swear. <laughs> um, I've had, I've had more than 80 jobs in my wow. life and they average to four months, average to four months per job which is not ironic because four months is about the time you have in an off season. Um, so I've worked in restaurants, I've worked in garden centers, I've built buildings, I've done everything, everything. Interesting. Um, and, uh, and that's just, you know, paying the bills and, and you know, keeping life fluid um, in between your, your aspirations to make a million dollars from snowboarding, which nobody does except for like three people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so in that time frame, at some point, I took a desktop publishing diploma, which is like, which was a joke because it was a private company that pretended to offer real diplomas. And all it did is teach me how to use Microsoft office and Photoshop a little bit. Uh, and I, I can't really call it desktop publishing, but uh, technically speaking, I have a diploma in digital sales and marketing, okay. which is desktop publishing. Um, and, uh, and I did learn a bit from it, to be honest. I, I ended up building a snowboard coaching course. I trained the Korean national snowboard team. Uh, I, I coached junior national athletes in snowboarding built my own website because I learned how to do that in desktop publishing. Um, awesome. But in, in 2003, I think it was, I was in Whistler, BC, nursing some injuries, wondering if I was going to have a future anymore in snowboarding. And the bombing of Baghdad happened. And oh, so this wow. was the beginning of the Iraq war. And I was working at a bar, watching the bombs hit the, hit the city uh, on these big TV screens. And I was so beside myself that we could, that, that, that CNN could tell us this was about, democracy and freedom or some shit um that i i spent the next five years of my life trying to think about how to get the world off oil and in that time i worked at car dealerships i worked at a motorcycle dealer two motorcycle dealerships one was honda the other was harley uh and i became top salesperson at those dealerships ended up managing the dealerships and doubling revenue uh and then in 2007, I started to get these excruciating headaches. And I've never been a person to get headaches. I've never been a person to be depressed. I've never been a person to not be pretty darn happy all the time. But I was in a really bad state for four months um, until I realized what it was, is I was avoiding what I really wanted to do. And that was to help get the world off oil. 
And man, like I'm getting emotional just thinking about it right now. It was the scariest moment of my life because I didn't know how to pay rent and it was Christmas and I was quitting my job and I was telling the general manager that I had to start an electric car company. And, you know, I come from snowboarding. I'm not a physicist. I don't know how to build batteries. You know, I, I'm, and I'm going to build an electric car company in Vancouver. Interesting. So I, I said, you know, come hell or high water in 2008, I will put an electric car on the road and I don't know how. And in March, 2008, a Ford dealership um, liked my idea that I had somehow gotten word to this Ford dealership. I can't remember how, and he donated a Ford truck to me and oh, wow. I raised a little bit of money from some friends and I hired a couple of engineers and we converted a Ford truck to electric. Oh, very cool. And then at, yeah. And at this, this is, you know, it took four months to do that. It was a, you know, lead acid batteries. There was 1200 pounds of batteries in the back of this truck. It was, you know, piece of crap, but it, it was an electric one that I drove every day. And I put out a press release that said that Canada, sorry, that, that Rev technologies had the first electric car showroom in Canada because technically we had an electric car in a room (laughs) and I got flooded with, with opportunities from this press release. Now gas prices were the highest they'd ever been at this moment in time. Sure. Um, So that helped. And, and sure enough, that helped me raise about a quarter million, which built us another prototype. We started converting Ford SUVs to electric. We built an AC drive system. We got, we brought in lithium ion. We started building our own power inverter. Um, Then I learned about this thing called vehicle to grid. And vehicle to grid is where you can feed energy from the battery back into the power grid in a fashion that's synchronized with the national grid, thereby allowing you to use vehicles as distributed energy storage, which is the holy grail. Well, it's Tesla, it's Powerwall, what they're doing right now. And so we were doing this back in 08, 09. And, um, and when I, we started getting into this, we started building the software hardware capability on board the vehicle and in the cloud to use these vehicles to, to manage the power grid. And the opportunity for the U.S. Army was to turn military microgrids into resilient energy systems that reduced fuel consumption. So fast forward four more years of this, and Rev Technologies was, in fact, helping the world get off oil. Not in any huge scalable way yet, but, you know, it was a bit of my my idea for for my life to uh, to be realized and we won military contracts and utility contracts and and we were doing some some pretty far out stuff that tesla is just beginning to do now wow very cool yeah so it was good fun so walk us through the rest of that up until kind of damon like what happened to rev so in 2012 we had we had distributed uh are sold uh, almost uh, 25, I think 23 of these SUVs at a price of 200 grand each. Uh, they had, they are still in use today on military bases and in Detroit and with Chrysler and with some U.S. cities. Um, and they were able to balance the energy from the grid, as I said. Um, but it was just a non-scalable play. So I had another idea uh, at the time, which was how do we connect instead of selling expensive electric cars to the army? How do I, how do I get 10 million cars to make 5% fuel improvement. So that's a way better way to get the world right. off oil if you could affect each and every driver. Um, natural gas prices tanked and obliterated my energy resale business in Rev. So we had to pivot Rev. Ah, okay. So I carried 47 shareholders and I gave them half of my founding stock in a business that I started called Mojio. 
And so I founded Mojio over four years. We built what's become the fastest growing, one of the largest consumer connected car platforms in the world, which is distributed by nine wireless carriers in seven countries and collected about seven petabytes of, of automotive data that's never before been collected. But we also built apps that allowed people to uh, gamify the way they drive to reduce their fuel consumption. Uh, so it's an open platform for apps for cars. And then Mojio, we raise money from Deutsche Telekom, T-Mobile, Amazon. Wow. Uh, now there's Bosch is in there and, and Assurance is in there and Trend Micro is in there. And it's been a very successful uh, connected car play. So I ran that company for four years and then we brought in a growth CEO in 2016. And, and I went off to Jakarta for my best friend's wedding. Okay. In that summer. And uh, yeah, and uh, Jakarta is the world that I dreamed of, where I thought, wouldn't it be cool if all the cars on the road were motorbikes? I think that'd be way better because I've been riding motorbikes and loving motorbikes my whole life. But uh, it was not cool. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> it was really scary and dangerous. And, and I came away from Jakarta, you know, thinking that technology can solve the chaos of millions of motorbikes on the road. They can move as a hive. Right. And I don't know how yet. I was thinking about drones and I was thinking about self, you know, flying cars and stuff like that. And I was thinking there's a way to get motorcycles to move as a hive where millions of people can move really easily and freely, freely have a high freedom of mobility, own a vehicle that's not wider than their shoulders, that is much, much lighter on the planet and safer, um, but they don't have to pilot it themselves if they didn't want to. And uh, where they could, you know, move along a, a busy freeway together as one group. And, you know, that future is at least 15 years away. Okay. Uh, but that's ultimately what's at the heart of Damon is to transform personal mobility. Uh, I desire to get the world off oil. And if you don't get motorbikes off oil, it'll never happen because more people ride a motorbike every day right. than those that drive a car. It's a much bigger number of people, um, about a billion and a half people. But motorcycle lists, their need, their, their strong desire is not to get themselves off oil. Their strong desire is to ride a motorcycle that's safer. It's right. the family van of most of the world. So I, I paired up the need of a motorcyclist for safety with my need to get the world off oil. And that really meant we had to reinvent the motorbike. Okay. So when you say you had to reinvent the motorbike, obviously you probably started with some prototypes or, or walk us through the early stages of Damon. Yeah. So we thought about, you know, everything from electrification to, um, you know, how do you make a motorcycle safer? How do you make it smarter? Connectivity, uh, cloud computing, over, over there updates. How do you make it perpetually better? Ergonomics, rideability. You know, there's a lot of categories there. Uh, ride sharing, mobility as a service, uh, virtualization. You know, we looked at all of that. And, uh, and you know, gut instincts told me that safety was going to be the number one most difficult thing. Uh, because I, I, did, I did not at the time believe that we could actually make a motorcycle safer. And, you know, my goal is to make it 10 times safer. Interesting. And so that's a pretty high goal. And uh, so we built, so we, we said, okay, well, you know what, we've got we to gotta look through a straw here and, and focus in on, on, the, on the biggest unknown, and that is motorcycle safety which are two strange words that you never hear together. Um, so, so we started thinking about ADAS, collision warning systems, um, where, where a system that is able to, to compute on board and learn from itself and get better over time, a bit like a Tesla. Okay. Um, and we started playing with LIDARs and cameras and radar and, and, and uh, neural nets and, and uh, object detection and tracking, segmentation, the whole bit. And we brought in the, the people to 
develop prototypes in, in just a couple of months. We built a full LiDAR prototype and a full camera prototype. Uh, and we started figuring out all of the trade-offs between cost of computing and cost of sensors and, you know, all of the weaknesses of, of each. Um, and over the last three years, we've, ge- we've developed four generations of our collision warning system that we call Copilot. Uh, we've had over 100 people test it from the LA police force to executives at Honda, Suzuki, Yamaha, to major media from Forbes magazine and Cycle World. Uh, and, and we're at a point where 100% of people that ride our bikes are convinced that this is a safer motorcycle, so much so that they are uncomfortable when they get back on their own bike after getting used to ours. Wow. So I want to step back for just a second. How did you fund all this and how did you make all those connections to some really big players in the space to actually test out your product? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, grit. Okay. You know, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to education for a second. Sure. I, I, I love reading, you know, these, these gurus who talk about the importance of education and university and college and training and, and, Honestly, I, I wish I could have built my own prototype. I would have saved a lot of money and a lot of dilution in the early days if I could have built my own prototype. But I wouldn't have two things you'll never get in school, sure. and that's resilience and grit. 100%. And you know, I got two boys, and 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 my uh, my my the boys' mom is uh, uh, you know believes very heavily in university, and I'm going to push them to university as hard as she will. But if they don't want to go, I'm not going to insist because. I would never trade what I've learned from, you know, 80 jobs and, and, and years and years of, of scraping by on noodles and, and ketchup to, uh, <laughs> to get to the next snowboard contest, because that's what I wanted to do, you know, and that develops the kind of perseverance that you need to get over one insanely impossible hurdle after another. And the only reason we are successful in my previous companies and, and hopefully with Damon is because when, when, when it was time to lie down and be dead, we just didn't. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, it makes all the difference. So it's just, it's just turning over one bloody rock after another until you get to where you want to get to. No, I, I love how you are open to talk about that because you're right. Like I, like the, the thing that always, like as somebody that went to university, I like all the knowledge that you want, whether you go to university or not is online and or in a textbook and you can get it all the same knowledge outside of a traditional kind of classroom. And I'm not saying don't go to university. I'm just saying like, there's other ways to get it. And like, you got to figure out what works for you. And I I am tired of those, like 10 things you need to do to be successful in life lists or like 10 things people do before six in the morning. It's like, if you're not a morning person, don't force yourself to be a morning person just because you read some list. Like it always found it so fascinating to me. Like like you need to figure out what works for you. Right. And, and I love yeah. that you're willing to share that, right? So, so I'm yeah, curious. My, so, my two boys go are ahead. like, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah my, my two boys are, are really interesting. My my older boy is 11, and he's so much like his mom. Okay. And, and my younger boy is seven, and he's so much like me. And and it's really interesting to watch because we're super different. My his mom and I, um, uh, how we approach life. You know, and my older guy, he will he'll study and observe and 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 then and then methodically learn. And my my younger kid is dead set on doing everything the hard way until he figures it out his way, which is my mom's number one complaint about me. She's so sick and tired of repeating (laughs) herself that I have to do everything the hard way. 
and and like screwing up a lot is a really good way to learn things sure it's infinitely better than being told how to learn something so it's not knowledge that i'm talking about it's 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 resourcefulness and 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 you know combined with perseverance it's pretty deadly so you know that's ultimately how we've gotten to what we've gotten to i mean up until ces of this year it was extremely hard to get anybody to pay any attention to Damon because no one gives a shit about motorbiking, especially Silicon Valley. That's so focused on the self-driving car, which is only for a minority of the population, which will be a shrinking minority. So it, it, you know, it's a misnomer that the self-driving car is going to change the world. It's not, it's, it's, I don't even know if it's in the future in 50 years. Interesting. Uh, I guess like I never really realized how big, like, I guess I should have thought that the, motorcycle population or people that ride motorcycles is way more than cars. I never really occurred to me. I never really put any thought in it, but I'm curious why you say that about self-driving cars. Well, because we have collision warning systems in a category of technology called ADAS advanced driver assistance, which is okay. like lane departure warning and adaptive cruise control. You know, in the industry, it's, it's level three of automation. So okay. there's five levels of, of self-driving cars. It's level three. Teslas are level three, for example, and I have a Tesla and I, and it drives itself all the time. I think it's awesome. Um, but we're going to get, we're, we're, we are already getting such vast improvements of safety from level two and level three collision warning and collision detection systems that, but they're not self-learning. These are not connected vehicles today, you know, other than uh-huh. Tesla's. Most cars, most all cars are, have a radar and a camera that's as dumb as it was the day it came off the assembly line. It's never going to get smarter. It's not getting algorithm updates. It's not learning from other General Motors or other Toyota cars. Right. It's just, it's as good as it was the day it shipped. But a self-learning one, a connected vehicle with an advanced warning system that can perpetually get safer from millions of other ones is we're going to close this gap from 40% accident reduction to 70%, 80%, 90%. And if people don't have to give up driving, that doesn't mean they won't. When it's convenient to give up driving, you will. But if you talk to anybody with a Tesla, they use autopilot like 10 to 15% of the time. Right. It works really, really well. So they're not, they're not not using it because it doesn't work well. They're not using it because they enjoy driving. And it's just, you know, it, it, so I think it's going to take decades for, genera- for a new generation of kids to come along and, and, and not see the point in driving. But they're still going to love, they're still going to be attracted to the allure of driving. And so we're not going to, we're never going to get rid of driving. And, uh, and not, you know, not to mention the fact that it's a smaller market. Motorcycles outnumber cars. You know, they sell they outsell cars two to one every year. Interesting. And if you go to if you go to Delhi or you go to Jakarta, you are at such a massive disadvantage getting in a car. It takes you three times longer to go the same distance because of the the millions of motorbikes that will that will swarm around your car, pushing you backwards as they take the front line. So you know, you you don't want they don't want a car. And if you drop a self-driving car into that, into that chaos, it will freeze. It's not going to cr- crawl right. forward because so many motorbikes will come within inches of it. Right. So, Inch- yeah, I never thought yeah. of it like that. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. So I want to get back to, into Damon. You quickly covered what you guys are doing, but let's dive a bit deeper into what exactly Damon is. And, the, and you guys have a couple models. And you, as far as I understand, you guys sold out of one of them, correct? Well, pre-sold i'm never going to oversell our numbers so we pre-sold that's still a big deal deposits yeah it's a good it's a good deal yeah so so let's well so so, okay keep going sorry yeah damon is the future of motorcycling 
Okay. And motorcycling, this is where we get controversial. Motorcycling is the future of mobility. In okay. fact, that's silly. Motorcycling is the present of, of mobility because there's a billion and a half people on motorbikes and there's a billion two people in cars. So motorcycling is already the, the present mobility worldwide. But motorcycling really has not, and, and without companies like Damon and others to come in and disrupt things, motorcycling hasn't evolved really in 100 years. Uh, it's still a, a you know, combustion engine. They've only now gone fuel injection in most countries, only now. You know, ABS is still only on 8% of the world's motorbikes, but motorbiking is the number one form of transportation worldwide. And if you don't have a motorbike or access to one, you can't get to work. You can't walk to the factory on the outskirts of Jakarta. You, and, if you, and if you twist your ankle on a Sunday playing soccer with your friends, you can't ride your motorbike because you need all four limbs to ride a motorbike. Therefore, you lose your job because you work at a factory like nine out of 10 people out there and you'll be replaced. Gotcha. So, you know, motorcycling has to evolve dramatically and it will become a form of personal mobility over the next 10 to 15 years where you could sit in some capsule-like pod that you can pilot. But if you don't and you don't avoid that accident, it will avoid for you. But you are, so it's a, semi, a semi-automated system, if you will. Right. Um, and you could also have it act as part of a swarm of other pod-like vehicles that may have more than two wheels uh, that will be much safer uh, for, for these masses of people so that, you know, their, their, their economies aren't being impacted three, four, 5% GDP just because of accidents, which is the, the reality they live in today. Right. Interesting. Today's show is brought to you by OnPay, the new standard in payroll. You can pay employees and contractors in minutes, automate your payroll taxes and filings, as well as provide health benefits and HR in all 50 states. For more information, visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash on pay. So, so walk us through some of the other features of, of Damon and how kind of the software integrates into the bikes. So yeah, the Damon Hypersport is a 100% electric motorcycle uh, really designed to displace the incumbents. And, you know, that's a bold statement and it may not happen with the first version of our bike, but uh, suffice to say, the industry has been not really all that receptive to change, to uh, making motorcycles better. And I think that's a big part of why uh, over and over again, you know, we see a tripling of used motorcycle sales over the last 15 years, but we see a drop in motorcycle sales by half in the United States on the new motorcycle front because the 2020 and the doesn't really have anything different from the 2018 or the 2017, except if you look back a few years, the price of the bike you want is half price. So why would you buy a brand new motorcycle when for a lot of people, motorcycling is, you know, something they spend discretionary income on. It's something they do on weekends. It's not a must have for their lives. So they, you know, if the 2020 is incrementally better than the 2017, you're just going to buy the 2017. So, you know, whereas something like Damon comes in, and we're pushing record-breaking performance on horsepower, range, acceleration, not just zero to 60, but zero to 100 in under four seconds. So, you know, between that third and fourth second, the amount of pull to go from 60 to 100 miles per hour is, is breathtaking. It's, it's pretty extraordinary, I got to say. And, uh, and, you know, no other motorcycle can even claim that today. So this kind of focus on innovation and focus on, on mass-level disruption I think will make for a really exciting bike. And 
we don't really emphasize that it's electric. It just that's just what it has to be to give you that kind of performance. Yeah, interesting. No, th that makes a lot of sense. But how do you guys integrate software into that as well? Because as far as I understand, not re that really hasn't come to bikes like it has cars. Is that correct? Uh, well, not entirely. I mean, we have okay. uh, motorcycles today. I mean, if you go out and buy a, a, 20, 20, a 20 to $30,000 super sport motorbike, it has traction control. It has anti-lock brakes. It has stability control. It has uh, anti-wheelie control. It has some of them have what they call curve ABS, uh, which is a, a predictive level of anti-lock brakes that okay. help uh, engage the brakes on a hard lean. So in, in a more subtle way. Um, and, you know, with a car, you know, you don't mess with traction control. It's just always on. Whereas with a motorcycle, like my, my gas motorbike, I think I have six levels of traction control. So you can really fine tune this stuff. Of course, you know, for, these are not for safety reasons so much as they're for performance reasons on the racetrack. So it's, uh, gotcha. you know, we don't see a lot of ABS and traction control on bikes under $20,000. It's almost non-existent. Um, wow. You know, 8% of the world's motorbikes have ABS. And, you know, when you look at the safety stats where half of all motorcycle riders were found to have taken no evasive action before a collision, then even if you have ABS and traction control, but you don't have time to pull the brakes before it's too late, it's pretty useless. So, you know, from a safety perspective, we've seen very little innovation, but on the, on the very high-end motorbikes, there's a lot of software for, for fine-tuning the, the edge of the tire when you're pushing the limits, so to speak. Interesting. Okay. So how are you guys leveraging some of that tech and, and how are you advancing that tech in uh, Damon? Well, that tech is, is quite literally an off the shelf bundle. It's a, okay. uh, it's a, it's a nine level, uh, ECU, uh, nine level IMU with ECU, uh, kit that you can get from Bosch, Continental, Delphi, all the big players, uh, make this kind of, of this tech stack available as practically as a bolt on. I mean, it has to be very fine tuned, which takes about a year. Uh, but none of that really, that's just sort of on the layer. Our, our software on the bike is, is very multifaceted. First off, we have an operating system, which is delivered by BlackBerry QNX. It's a kernel layer operating system. Uh, one of the most robust and stable uh, systems in the world. You'll find it in about 85% of the world's cars. Uh, and on top of that system is our ECU and our onboard computer that interfaces to all of the, the edge computing network that we have on the bike. So we run a neural net. Uh, on the bike that interfaces to all of the different sensors, the radars, the, sens the, the cameras. Uh, we have non-visual sensors like infrared and beam-forming microphones that do very advanced things that you would never expect a motorcycle to do. And, and that really makes up the bike's situational awareness, its ability to perceive its environment uh, in real time, its ability to perceive the rider's behavior, and its ability to perceive the traffic environment. What is the traffic doing uh, on a wet road in a three-lane intersection, you know, 53 feet before you went to that intersection. What's going on then? And, and how is that going to play into the risks of the rider? So it's, it's pretty sophisticated. Of course, it interfaces to a 4G telematics unit. So we have Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and NFC, 4G, a GPS. And, uh, and we aren't computing off the bike. All the computing is done on the bike. But we do have the backhaul connectivity with the cloud if needed. Interesting. Okay, so how do you guys do some of that safety stuff? Because it's got to be 
a little bit tricky. I, I know, like, obviously, there's a bunch of companies doing it with cars. As far as I know, you guys are one of the first to do it kind of with motorbikes. But how are you guys kind of leveraging what's currently there and, and then building on top of that? Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really fascinating question. And so I'm going to back paddle a little bit sure. before I dive in deep. So first of all, let's take the state of the art with cars. So cars, you have a forward radar and a rear radar. Pardon me. No, you have a Ford radar. You may have a rear ultrasonic radar on a car strictly for backup cam for backup functionality to give you a distance between you and the garage door, for example, or, a, or another car. Okay. Um, and then you have side radar. You might have cameras on, on a car, depending on the car you're buying. And, and they are, you know, the Ford sensing system and the side sensing system are completely islanded from one another. So there is no reason under the sun, as far as the automakers are concerned, that your blind spot detection system needs to communicate with your forward collision system. And so they don't. And then secondly, they're not connected to the internet, which means they don't ever get smarter. They don't get better. You know, your, your Hyundai Sonata is not going to learn from other Hyundais. It just doesn't work that way. They don't have any 4G connectivity. They don't have the business models. They don't have the wireless carrier relationships uh, to enable all of that. And they don't know how to charge customers for the connectivity and the data that it would require. And so none of that exists. And the stack on the car cannot do any of that. And frankly, none of it is made by Hyundai. It's made by, you know, Bosch or Continental. And it's, it's really all about mass sales and, and commoditization. Interesting. On a Tesla or on a Damon, uh, we have a system that is hyper-intelligent. So we have, you know, a, a full rear collision warning system, side collision warning system, front collision warning system, and all of our onboard edge network computing devices by edge i mean each one of them is modularized as an architecture on board the bike uh, and they talk to each other and so this is a lot like having a bird's eye view of a motorbike so if you could imagine a drone at 100 feet looking down on your motorbike and looking down at the traffic and being able to see from that bird's eye view every which direction all of the traffic is headed uh, you could very easily predict what the traffic is going to do in the next few seconds. If a car is racing up behind you really fast, pulls into a lane on the left, and then cuts in front of you, which I cannot tell you how many times that's <laughs> happened to me on a motorbike, sure. our system can predict that, right? It can track the speed and the velocity of the car behind me. It can uh, warm up or, 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 or preload the, the blind spot detection system as that car passes from behind you to the side, and then anticipate the car's behavior to pull into the front and cut you off, because they just don't see motorbikes. They don't mean to cut us off. They just do. Uh, and, and that gives the bike the ability to, to, to respond at a much faster rate, uh, no matter what the traffic is doing and no matter what the different differential speeds are between the cars and the motorbikes. And then, of course, you know, every time that kind of behavior happens, our system records that and puts it in the cloud. So if I get warned of a threat, I get warned of a car about to cut me off through a haptic vibration in my handlebar, and I respond by pulling the brake then the system takes that positive response from the rider and it knows without a doubt it correlated that situation correctly. It tags that whole 30 second scenario, mm -hmm. pushes it to the cloud and our engineers on the other side, you know, disseminate that data times a hundred and build a new update. That makes for a smarter bike that can more, more likely predict that situation next time. Interesting. So you're basically using AI and kind of human validation for that AI to better the riding experience and make it safer for kind of everyone that's that's using a Damon motorcycle. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, well, I hate to say this, but there's about 600 humans behind Amazon Alexa listening to every single conversation I have in my house right now. Sure. Um, and that's what that's what the industry currently calls AI. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. No, I, that's, that's interesting because I, I think it seems to me even outside of kind of what you guys are doing, more and more AI projects are, are getting – adding humans back in for – some sort of validation because we've finally figured out that, you know, we can get to a certain point at this point in, in history with AI, but, you know, we still need that human intervention to make sure what it's suggesting or doing is, is validated by a human. And, and it's, it's cool that you're, you're open to talk about that because I think a lot of people are still like, no, no, it's hundred percent AI. It's like, no, it isn't. You're just lying to everybody. <laughs> no, no, yeah, everybody's lying to everybody. The whole industry's lying. The whole industry's lying about self-driving cars in every which way, by the way. But, you know, that's another, that's another ball of wax. Um, but no, absolutely. I mean, in the case of, of Alexa making a joke that is time just right, fine. We need humans in the background of that. In the case of a motorbike that's going to get a software update that will go from detecting an accident to predicting one, I mean, we're talking about flawlessness. Right. Absolute flawlessness before we ship it. So it's one thing that there's humans in the background building the next software update by literally watching video footage of bike situation after situation and then, you know, working the algorithms to to, and to better improve that predictability. Then we've got to put that algorithm into a software simulator, which we've built entirely already. Wow. Uh, and we where we actually test the algorithm in a simulated city motorcycle riding environment. And we do that a hundred times, and then we put it on a couple of prototype bikes and send it out into the into the wild uh, with with employee test riders for an indeterminable amount of time, and then we slowly release updates. I mean, it'll take that that process at the beginning is going to be at least a year, and we're going to need at least a thousand bikes worth of data before we start doing software updates. So this is you know out into the you know a couple of years away from now future, but it's absolutely the roadmap. It's the technology we're baking in at the at the sensor level now, and to do this in three to five years, we have to be a data-driven company today at the right. very onset of the company. The architecture, the plans, the designs, the kind of data we're collecting, the patents we're writing, uh, the people we're hiring, the know-how we're looking for, all of that has to be understood and, and, and really baked in now. No, I 100%. That, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because especially when it's this life or death thing, like, sure, if, if I'm talking to Alexa and it's, you know, a human needs to check something. There's nothing, as far as I understand, that really puts my life in danger if Alexa screws that up, right? But obviously, if you guys <laughs> right. push a yeah. software update, totally it's different. bad. Yeah, it's totally different. And it's it's great that you guys are spending that much time and effort testing because I think in a lot of cases, not a lot of other kind of companies doing this kind of stuff are testing that thoroughly just based on what I've kind of read. So I'm curious, though, how do you decide which types of uh like features is maybe the wrong word for it but like like you just mentioned if a car comes from behind you and is about to cut off how do you decide what scenarios you guys are going to work into your software whether it's today tomorrow or in uh, a year or two yeah that's a cool question um so I'll, I'll give you kind of two answers to that the first is uh there is not a ton of accident reports on motorcycles that okay. have been studied over the years, but there are some and, and the ones that there are very deep. Okay. Um, and so we've, you know, digested those ad nauseum, reverse engineered everything, figured out what all the, 
you know, variables are in, in that cause accidents? What are, what are the behaviors and variables? What are the forensics of motorcycle accident data? And actually some of it's really interesting and I've published it uh, in summary in a white paper, uh, which used to be on our website. I can email it to you if you're interested. Sure. Um, and you know, things like you know, in 5% of motorcycle accidents, excessive speed is a factor. But in 95% of motorcycle accidents, speed is not a factor. And so there are a lot of assumptions that are dispelled. Uh, so it's one thing to know that. And by, and by having that data, we know historically in, in various geographies, what are the most common types of accidents. And the top three, almost again and again and again in every country is being T-boned in an, in an intersection, right. uh, hitting a car from behind in an intersection, and being hit from behind while stopped at a red light. Those are the top three almost, almost universally around the world. Uh, and so if you could reduce and, and those make up two thirds of all motorcycle accidents. And so, yeah, our system deals with those top three, the, the line of the um, being hit from behind, being hit in the front and T-boning all in the intersections. And again, those would be the, if all we ever did were those three, we'd be taking a big bite out of motorcycle accidents worldwide. Then there's, you know, seven or eight more that are reported in lesser percentages uh, throughout the world, seven or eight more use cases of how people end up in motorcycle accidents. And let's not forget that a third of them are caused by the rider, which is a different ball of wax we could talk about. Uh, so as we start collecting more and more camera data, so there's a, a, there's an, a potential accident, the bike detects it, it warns the rider, the video footage goes to the cloud, we watch that video footage. As you start to determine and see our own patterns of what, are, what the kind of fourth, fifth, and sixth use cases really are from our own recorded data, we'll then build algorithms to deal with those. Interesting. Okay, so you said another quarter is, is the rider themselves. Do you want to give us some examples of that? About a third. Yeah. So it's it's you know inattentiveness, drinking, yeah. uh, it's uh, inability. So it's uh, target fixation. The rider going through a curve uh, sees a sees a uh, cliff on the right. You know, a, a cliff wall focuses on that instead of focusing on the road and, and runs into the cliff. You know, oh, those right. things happen okay. a lot. Motorcyclists get target fixation and motorcyclists make, make mistakes or they're pushing the bike up beyond their ability level. Um, these are Western problems, not, not so much Eastern problems. Okay. Um, people who have mo motorcycles that are too powerful for their skill level. Yeah, those kinds of things. And, and actually, we have quite a number of ways we can and will deal with those that will make every rider basically a rock star and, and not be able to make those kinds of human errors anymore. Um, and it's not semi-autonomous riding, but it is a level of, of throttle and control intervention that where the bike is, is calculating, you know, uh, highway curvatures and lean angles to, to determine max throttle and max and ma minimum angle needed to get through the turn and then actually just smoothing out rider error. So there's some things we're going to do in that regard, but that's way down the list of, of, of what causes accidents. Interesting. Yeah, no, that that's actually really quite fascinating because obviously like you're a way more skilled rider than I, like I've only ridden a motorbike a few times in my life. So obviously like you're going to be, and like, if I was to ride your bike, for example, you could almost tailor my riding experience to my level on your bike. Maybe not today, but like down the road, just based on like uh software input or you change some settings. Is that kind of what you mean at a high level? Uh, somewhat, and we're 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 going we're we're nudging towards some of our our proprietary know-how now, but uh, okay. something like that. Yeah, it's a little bit like um, 
you like, I'll, I'll say it in a metaphor. Everybody who wants to ride a motorbike or, or jump out of a plane for and skydive or do anything quote unquote risky, they want to feel more alive. They don't right. actually want to flirt with death, right? So, right. But they want to feel more alive. They want to feel like they're taking risks. They want to, you know, boost up their testosterone and pound their chest like a man, but they don't actually want to put their lives at, at stake. Right. So, you know, that's why we get on roller coasters that have these, these lockdown restraints because it's really exciting, but there's really no chance of death. And so, you know, a motorcycle is the same way. A lot of motorcyclists talk about the purity of riding and the, I don't want software intervening with my ride because, you know, that's not motorcycling. Then it's just like, you know, it's cheating. That's what they always say. It's cheating. Well, we're all trying to cheat death, actually. So if we can make motorcycling uh, feel exciting and feel exhilarating and you can get on a, on a deeper lean angle sooner and, and it, it augments your ability level, but it's also quietly taking away that risk, nobody's going to turn that down. And that's actually what curve ABS and traction control do on super bikes today. I mean, I've had it where my traction control was cutting the throttle on a, on a racetrack and, and the white traction, traction control light is flashing so hard until I stand the bike up and suddenly I've got all this power again. So the bike was taking away power because I was leaning over too far and had the bike been delivering that power, it would have spun the rear tire and I would have fallen. And it made me better. I was, I was cutting a few seconds off my lap time because of it. Right. So I'm a, I'm a rock star now, but it really wasn't skill. It was software. Interesting. Yeah, no, it, yeah. It, it's cool how like, or that how software can correct some of that stuff. Right. And in your case, like, but to avoid you, you falling off the bike, but I, I love how like kind of the human and kind of software combined, you can, you can really get better and, and you can really, like push things to kind of the next level, right? Which, which is always really quite fascinating to me. Totally. Yeah. You, 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 you move through the learning curves faster. You are, you are technology aided, but you know, give me a, give me a 1900 era tennis racket and, and put me up against yourself with a, with a modern carbon fiber, you know, racket that actually uses synthetic, you know, um, I'm not even sure the name of those things inside the racket, the strings. Sure. Yeah. And you're going to kick the crap out of me. You're going to put velocity on that ball that I couldn't dream of. That doesn't, we don't look at a modern tennis racket and call that technology, but compared to an old tennis racket, it sure as hell is. And sure. so do you have this, this unfair te technological advantage? Absolutely. And it's going to make you a better tennis player. Sure. Well, and then too, like if it, if it makes me safer on the road, ri riding a motorbike, like it, it's kind of a no brainer, right? Totally. Yeah. No, it's just, it, it's just a funny thing. We have an old generation of motorcyclists that are, that will tell you that they don't want software technology messing with the purity of riding. But, you know, meanwhile, their ankle is fused because they broke it motorcycling 30 years ago and they're riding a motorcycle with an automatic transmission because of that, you know, so, yeah, you know, motorcyclists talk out of both sides of the mouth all the time. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but you know, interestingly, what we've seen, I'm not sure if we've talked about this yet, but we've had an extraordinary number of orders for an expensive motorbike, an expensive electric motorbike that doesn't make noise and doesn't have gears and all the things that riders say they're not willing to give up. We have an amazing number of orders for this bike. And 35% of them are millennials. 35% of them are under the age of 34 buying a $25,000 electric motorbike, a 200 horsepower electric motorbike. It's, it's, it's shocking. I mean, the entire motorcycle industry worldwide is trying to figure out how to get millennials to ride motorbikes. And 
I don't know if we're going to have that problem. Well, but I, I think in, in your guys' case, like it, it's environmentally friendly, it's uh, safer, and honestly, it's cheaper than buying a car. And, and most people, uh, I'm 36, just for some context, it's like most people even I know try to get away with, with one car or, you know, one of their cars is an electric car or, or some of them just ride a normal pedal bike, right? And so I think yeah. people are getting more and more conscious about not only spending a ton of money, like it's not that hard to spend fifty, sixty thousand dollars on on a car or truck or, or whatever you need, right? But if you're just going to and from work or school or maybe it's your second vehicle, you don't need to spend, you know, tens and thousands of dollars just to get to and from work, right? And I think you guys yeah. are filling that hole. That's exactly. my best guess. There's this excessiveness, this excessiveness in in mass and metal and 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 space taken up on the road and this excessiveness of cost. I mean, people, everybody spends five hundred to a thousand dollars a month making a car payment for totally. something that they use for about fifty five minutes of their day. I mean, it's weird, right? It's if you yeah, really look 100%. at it, it's super weird. Yeah. And so I'm really interested. We're going to be talking to a lot of our customers now over the next while. I'm really interested in knowing how many of them uh, bought this car, this motorcycle in lieu of buying a car. Sure. No, and that, I'm really interested in that. That's that's fair enough. So we're, we're kind of coming yeah. to the end of the show. So where can people actually reserve a motorbike? And uh, let's mention any other links you want to talk about where people can get more information about you guys. For sure. So we are at DamonMotorcycles.com. Damon is spelt like Matt Damon. And uh, you can pre-order the bike there. It's a $100 reservation for the Hypersport HS. And uh, if you keep your eyes tuned to the website, around the end of this month, there's going to be a very big update, very big news, uh, and some exciting new stuff on there too. So make sure you sign up for the newsletter, which is at the bottom of the homepage, I believe. Yeah. Uh, we've just got a ton of exciting things to, uh, to talk about over the coming months. Perfect, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day, man. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Talk soon. Thank, thank you. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.